Good morning, church family. Good to see you. I want to say good morning to those in the classic venue. Glad to have you. And those watching online, name is Branziski, lead pastor here. Hey, uh, real quick, I want to say thank you to those of you in our congregation who volunteered this weekend when we had our district EFCA conference. It was a real sweet time of fellowship. And I know many of the pastors and the staff and elders and deacons that were part of it were blessed. So thank you for serving. Really appreciate that. Um, two quick things. Next Sunday is going to be a special Sunday. We're going to shake some things up a little bit here. Really want to encourage you to come. You're going to hear from different voices. And it's going to be really encouraging, Lord willing. But also, it's going to be a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper and also celebrating baptism. So we want to encourage you to come next Sunday. So I want to make sure that you have this. So if you have your 2 Timothy little Bible, come on, raise it with me. I want to have you guys pull that out now. If you don't have it or if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, grab one on the way out. And honestly, you won't offend me if you get up right now and go grab one. I want to encourage you to do that because this is our gift to you. It's a Bible journal. We're encouraging people to take notes, journal down thoughts, um, things that are stirring in your heart as we go through 2 Timothy, because we're also going through all of 2 Timothy in our groups together, and there's a study guide um, there for you as well. Okay. During the, the past two weeks, we have seen, when I say we, I'm talking like our culture. We have seen a hunger of God grab the attention of Christians around the world and in our culture. We have seen a stirring up for Jesus in the heart, specifically within the Gen Z generation. It seems that if God is doing something unique, as if he's outpouring his spirit within the collegiate campuses and in high schools. So I want to ask how many of you were aware of what was happening at Asbury University Okay, if, like there's no like shame. If you aren't aware, Asbury University is a Christian um, university that also has a seminary attached to it. And all of a sudden, some things started to happen there that really grabbed the attention of Christianity and the watching world. Now, I want to be honest, like words like revival and outpouring and all these types of things. Like for me, I'm a natural skeptic. I'm a natural cynic. I'm usually very cautious when those things. Like I've had some like uh, charismatic abuse. I'll just do that and you can go wherever you want to go with that. And like so I tend to go into it a little bit hesitant because people tend to overhype it or there's all sorts of emotional attachment to it. Or people start to use it and abuse it for their own personal gain. But however, I think the best approach when we process and think about what God has been doing at Asbury and other college campuses and even other churches is to actually approach it not with skepticism, not with a critical attitude, but one with hope and joy. Like, really, we need to. Because our world and our culture has been overwhelmingly hopeless. Brokenness and hatred, division, anxiety, depression, and fear. These are things that have defined Generation Z. And I am, I don't know about you, but I am incredibly sick of the hopelessness in our world. I'm incredibly sick and tired of seeing it and hearing it. So... Whatever news that tends to come from the church these days, right at large, tends to be bad news. It tends to be about churches and their systemic abuse of how they maybe swindled money or narcissistic pastoral leadership taking advantage of people so that way they can get their own fame and build out their own church platform. I mean, these failings of the church are in the eyes, in the heart of millennials and Gen Z because they're constantly in front of digital devices. So when something beautiful and hopeful like what happened at Asbury, like it begins to sadden me and it actually turns into aggravation that the majority of critique and skepticism and caution tends to come from the church. Now, I'm not saying we just go with it blindly. I'm not saying we don't test and weigh it. But why can't we extend hope and joy and pray and come alongside what God is doing? It immediately reminds me of a story where Jesus was at with, a, like, um, 
with uh, Simon and Martha and Mary are there. And, and Mary comes and she pours out this expensive perfume. And Judas and some of the other disciples and other people out there, they're giving Mary a hard time for her devotion and adoration. Such a waste. Why would you do that? That's not what we do. And Jesus is like, leave her alone. Leave her alone. What she has done will be told forever. And I look at what's happening, and quite frankly, it's still happening. It is bringing the hope of Jesus to so many. I mean, it's, it's specifically to a generation that has been completely written off during a very desperate time in our culture. And when you look at what happened there, there is no hype. No hype. No production value. It's extremely unimpressive. No celebrities, no plan, no program, no budget. And then I started thinking about, and I, I think it's good, but like the Super Bowl ad, he gets us and how many millions of dollars that was spent, and yet God is still doing something beautiful with zero dollars. In fact, I want to show you a picture of how it started, because how this all started was just a normal chapel service, they have to go to chapel. It's required of them to do that. And do we have that first picture? So one of the coaches of a sports team just preached, and he would even say that his message was completely unimpressive because he kind of just won it. And what happened after that chapel service was something that was out of the ordinary that they have not seen in years. Some students lingering. No, no, not that one yet. Jumped it. Just that's all it is. There was just some students that lingered after the chapel feeling the need to confess their sin because they neglected the love of God. And, the, and I got some colleagues that were on the ground there that I know and I trust, and the stories that started to come out from this was that students in different classes just started to feel prompted inside to go back to the chapel. Nobody was texting. There wasn't any viral hashtag, revival at Asbury right now, you better come. It was just a bunch of students feeling this, and they started asking their professors if they could skip class to go to the chapel. And then the next thing you know, within a couple hours, the next slide, this scene, it starts to show up. And this was going on for 24-7 for a few days before anybody outside of Kentucky knew about it. Hunger, something was stirring. People were desperate for a move of God. Acts 13, 36 talks about how David served God in his generation. Like every generation has specific needs, has specific context, specific issues that they're facing. And when I think about what was happening at Asbury, I cannot help but think about the beauty and the kindness and the sovereignty of God and how he ministered and poured out his spirit to Gen Z. A pastor who is very familiar about the ins and outs of Asbury, who was on the turf the whole time that this was happening, he said this about this revival, and I love this. He said what he saw was God extending peace for a generation that's experiencing unprecedented anxiety. A deep sense of communality and belonging for a generation that is experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. Humble leadership for a generation that is sick and tired of narcissistic leaders, systemic church abuse, and it was a simple, stripped-down, participatory adoration for a generation that is caught up in digital distraction. That should give us hope and great joy. It should challenge us and stir us up. No celebrity, nothing to be impressed with besides Jesus. Jesus was exalted. Scriptures was the main voice. Confession and repentance was the main response. People gave their life to Jesus. Genera generosity broke out. People felt the call to go into missions. One of the scenes, people from the balconies was throwing money down because someone said, I feel called to go back to the homeland of my family, but I have no money. I mean, it was just Unreal. So I find myself asking this question, now what? 
Because some of the criticism was like, well, let's just wait and see the fruit. And then once we see the fruit, then we'll know. Sure, I agree. But can we not rejoice when one person says yes to Jesus on the spot? So now we got to ask the question, not what? Like, what do we do with this cultural moment and how does this cultural moment stir our hearts up? And how does this connect to the text that we are in presently? Because the reality is, like it says in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gave this parable about the seeds that were being casted on four different types of soil, which represent four different hearts. Some of the seed is casted on this stony ground where the birds of the air snatch it away. In other words, that's a reference to the enemy stealing what God was trying to do. Are there people that were part of Asbury where this is going to happen to? Of course. There were some people who received it out of an emotional bandwagon, just being part of it. They received it with great joy. But when hardship comes from internal or external sources, they will walk away. There were some who received the seed, it grew, it started to come up, but weeds and other things started to choke out the growth and the fruit of that seed. Is that going to happen? 100%. But yet there were some who took that seed and they produced the fruit and multiplied itself. That's the reality. That's what happens in every context God moves. So I'm going to ask a question. What do all four types of hearts, all four types of soil need? I know you're going to give me the Sunday school answer. <laughs> Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, you're right, gold star. But what else do they need? What do we need? We need someone to walk alongside of us. We need someone to invest their lives into us. These students need someone to disciple them, to teach them the way of Jesus, and not just teach them, but show them the way of Jesus, to constantly reinforce them that no matter what comes, Jesus is worth it, the gospel is worth it. They need people, we need people who are willing to share their struggles, their experiences, their ups and downs, and tell them and show them how God has been faithful and good so that they can produce fruit and multiply the millennials in Gen Z are growing up in a very hyper-secularized culture where tech is all that they know and they can get resources at any moment that they want. Morality and truth is a constant moving target and let's be honest, the church doesn't have a good look. We're living in a time where it's tempting to be ashamed of Jesus, to shrink back and to walk away. There's a strong deconstruction movement happening within the church of Jesus Christ because they want to make the gospel relevant to their lives and their culture instead of allowing their lives to become relevant to the gospel. But here's the connection to 2 Timothy. Timothy was either an old Gen Z or a young millennial when Paul discipled him. That's the age of Timothy. Timothy experienced the saving grace of Jesus. His life was transformed. Two weeks ago, Paul even said, you look at chapter one, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It's real. It's authentic. Timothy knows the hope and peace and the love of Christ, but yet Timothy needs an example by which he can learn from, especially in those moments and during those times when cultural influence and pressure is closing in. Timothy needs to see how it looks to follow Jesus, not just when things are great, but when things are hard in the trenches, when everything seems dire, when you're under fire, and even when you're facing death. 
He needed someone who would look him in the eye and say straight to his heart, Jesus is worth it no matter what. He needed someone to show him that instead of someone just constantly saying, Jesus is worth it, Jesus is worth it, Jesus is worth it. Well, how? The culture around Timothy, friends, it didn't make following Jesus easy. Just like our culture today. Difficult cultural setting. Back then, you would be criminalized and actually even executed for following Jesus. Today, we just get canceled. False teachers coming into this new church, deconstructing the gospel and adding things to the gospel. It would be so tempting to walk away, to shrink back. Morality was diverse, depravity. Oh, man, things happened in Ephesus that would make the church blush today. And Paul knew exactly what Timothy was up and against. He probably knew exactly what Timothy was feeling. Paul was there from the beginning. He saw Timothy say yes to Jesus. Timothy was his spiritual child. Paul invested his life into Timothy, took him with him on his journeys, was part of church plants. Timothy got to experience the outpouring of the Spirit all over Asia Minor. He got to see what it looked like to follow the Spirit and to be dependent on the Spirit as Paul said, hey, I want you now to pastor this church. I can imagine Timothy going, what? Timothy saw these things. He saw people saying yes to Jesus, but he also saw and experienced obstacles. He saw how Paul dealt with them. He saw how Paul still prayed in the midst of them, like how Paul still gave thanks and still worshiped in the midst of it. He saw how Paul went after Jesus in the midst of it. He saw how Paul still told others about Jesus in the midst of trials and persecution. Even while after being beaten, accused, arrested, misunderstood, he saw Paul remain true. So when Paul writes these words to Timothy, be strong in the grace, Timothy's not like, oh, you're just saying it. He can immediately go, I saw his life. How can I do what Paul did? I can imagine that being Timothy's thought. Because now Paul is in a dungeon, hole in the ground, waiting his execution, and he's now in charge of overseeing the churches. How can I do this? How many of you ever felt that? How, how can I do what Paul did, what Peter did, what John did? How can I do what Jesus is asking me to do? Like, how does this work? That's why Paul wrote this letter. Because he needed to remind Timothy of what's needed and to exhort him to keep going on. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, after the longest introduction ever. <laughs> verse 1. You, therefore, my son. You, therefore, my son. He is referencing everything he just said, basically, in chapter 1. Timothy, my child, I remember your sincere faith. It's real, it's authentic. You've been given a gift from the Holy Spirit. Fan that into flame, Timothy. Don't be afraid. That's not a byproduct of the Holy Spirit, but we have, like, the, the Holy Spirit produces in us power and love and a sound mind. Timothy, remember the gospel. Timothy, remember how Jesus saved us and rescued us and redeemed us and called us to a holy life and a distinct purpose because of his grace. Timothy, remember Jesus and don't be ashamed of him or me. Remember, Timothy, that our life is about helping people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. Timothy, listen. I am not ashamed of Jesus, even in this midst of being in chains in this dark, damp, feces-smelling, mold-ridden cave as I am waiting my death. I have no regrets in following Jesus, not even in this moment, Timothy. So guard that good deposit, the gospel that's been entrusted to you, but don't do it in your own strength. Do it through the Holy Spirit. Lean on him, depend on him, and yes, people will walk away, but not all. So Timothy, you therefore my son, 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's say that together as a church. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because that is what's needed. This is how they did it. Strong in the grace. How was Paul able to have the right perspective in such horrible circumstances? How was Paul able to still pray and give hope and evangelize knowing he's about to be executed because he knows him? He knows Jesus, whom he believed. And Paul's strength came from a daily and constant awareness and recognition of the grace of God. Let's just be honest. Following Jesus takes strength. It takes courage. It takes humility. And to embrace humility, well, that takes courage. But what is the source of strength? Is it in you? Are you the source of strength? Is it something else on the outside? Is it a try harder, do more? I know I should, I could be. Is that our source of strength, my personal discipline? Like I started thinking about this. It's like if my source of strength in following Jesus is based upon me and my effort and my character and my competency, friends, that flame would be out cold. Our source of strength has to come from something outside of ourselves. So I say it this way. What starts with grace, what starts with grace must be sustained by grace. If your faith starts in grace, it's by grace we've been saved. Through faith, not by works, not by your own efforts, not by your own strength then your faith has to be sustained by grace. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, specifically verses 2 through 6. And he calls his church out. He's like, you foolish Galatians. What are you doing? You started out in faith. You started out in grace. But are you now trying to perfect your life by your own works? Like, have you neglected grace? Are you now thinking it's upon you to be able to be strong and to stand and to follow Jesus? No. Does God work based upon our efforts? No. It's by grace. It's by faith. Be strong in the grace. Timothy, embrace. Embrace your weakness. Now, I started thinking about, like, you know when you, like, say a line to someone, and all of a sudden that line, like, opens up a plethora of other conversations that you had with that person? I imagine that happened with Timothy when he read these words from Paul, be strong in the grace. I can imagine Timothy thinking, embrace your weakness, Timothy. Remember, Timothy, what I said to the churches in Corinth. Remember what I was exhorting them in. Remember when we prayed that God would take that thorn in my flesh. Remember how hard that was for me, Timothy. And I was like, God, take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. Maybe even Timothy prayed with Paul in that and God said, no. Remember how I told the church? No. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. In fact, in your weakness, My power is made perfect. Timothy, embrace your weakness. You don't be strong in yourself. Don't pull up your own bootstraps. Your strength doesn't come from how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't come from how much you know. It doesn't come from how much you give or how many times you serve. It comes from being strong in the grace. Timothy, live in the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Abide in Jesus because grace is only found in Jesus. Verse 21 of Jude, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of Jesus. This grace is only found in Jesus. And this is the strength that you need is found in Jesus. John 1, 16. Indeed, we've all received grace upon grace 
upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. It's almost as if like God's like through Jesus, he just heaps grace on you. You can never deplete his grace. You can never exhaust his grace. There's always a more than enough grace. Timothy, even in your battle in your flesh, battling your sinful tendencies, those desires that you're trying to put to death by the Spirit, remember what James teaches. Remember how James talks about the Holy Spirit that is inside of us, envies intensely for you to draw near to not being a friend of the world. And I love what James says here. Or do you suppose, verse 5, it says to no purpose, that he yearns jealousy over the Spirit, verse 6, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace, even in your struggle, in your sin. He opposes the proud. You know who the proud are in this context? Those who try to find strength in themselves. But he gives grace to the humble. I need you, Jesus. I am weak. And I'm going to boast in that weakness. Because in that weakness, I'm going to experience heaps of grace. And when I struggle, there's more grace. The humble are those who find their strength in the grace of God. God gives more grace. Grace, friends, is actually the very thing that causes you to say no to sin. Grace is what teaches you how to say no to sin. Titus chapter 2 Verse 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The love of Christ is a greater desire than any other sinful desire. Be strong in the grace, Timothy. It's God's grace that motivates me stays me, compels me to keep going. That's why I still work hard. Timothy, remember what I said to the people in Corinthians? Remember that? Remember how I wrote to them when we were talking about the resurrection? Chapter 15, verse 10. I am what I am. Not by my degree, not by my pedigree, not by what I have. I am what I am by the grace of God. And it was his grace that caused me to work hard. In fact, it was his grace that gave me the power to keep going. I'm telling you, when Timothy read these words, he saw all of this in his memory. All he had to do was think about Paul's life and what he saw. So, Saying that, now is as good of a time to ask again. Who's your one up? Who's your one up? Who's investing into you? Who's discipling you? Who are you seeing Jesus in? Uh, may I be so bold and... and to say that this really isn't an option. And we treat it as an option. Who's your one up? Who's pouring into your life? Who's not only telling you, but showing you that Jesus is worth it? So I want to take a moment and speak to Gen Xers. Yes, that's my generation, us who are forgotten. We get no attention. Millennials and Gen Z and the boomers. Oh yeah, X, Nirvana. Not bitter. Gen Xers, 40s and up, I want to speak to you. Okay? Classic, listen up, I'm speaking to you. The emerging generations. The emerging generations need to see Jesus in your life. They don't need to be told about Jesus per se. You need to tell them about Jesus, but they are not 
at a shortage of information. Podcasts, sermons, albums, it's all there. What they need to see is a life. Do you realize that they need you? They need you. In fact, they want to be poured into. They want to be invested in. They want to be discipled. They want to. And I want to gently ask those who are 70 years old and up. It's a gentle question. What's the legacy you want to leave behind? Like, what is the most impactful thing you can do for Jesus and the church with the years left that God has given you? What is it? Do all that you can to find a Timothy and tell him and show him it's worth it. I've heard this so many times. Well, Brandon, how do I go about starting one? I don't know all these people, and nobody's coming to me to ask for me to disciple them. I want to have you change your paradigm. Let's approach it from a biblical model instead of waiting for people to come to you, which is honestly passivity. Do what Jesus did. Pray. Ask God to show you who. And then you go ask them. You take the initiative and ask. Well, I don't know how. Guys, I'm telling you, no excuse. I am sorry, leaning in. No excuse. There's a men's movement happening of 175 guys plus, multi-generational. You don't know who? Show up. Pray. Look around. Ask. Women, I don't know who. I'm not connected with anyone. Well, guess what? There's a 175 women's discipleship movement. Get involved. Pray. Eyes up. Ask. I don't know. Shake it up. Get in a new small group. Maybe come praying on a Sunday morning. God, who needs someone? And could I be that person? Because here's what I find fascinating. Verse 2. All week... I don't know why I've never asked this question. All week, I'm sitting here wrestling with this question. God, why is this the next verse? Timothy, be strong in the grace. And then it moves into this powerful verse. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others. That man is humanity. It's male and female. And I find myself going, why is this here. Why? It began to dawn on me. So, let's just be honest. Making disciples may very well be one of the hardest things to do when it comes to following Jesus. Think about it. It's one of the most essential things to do when it comes to following Jesus. It's about relationships. Yeah, but I'm busy. It's about investment of time. It's about energy. It's about emotion. It's another step towards self-denial. It takes courageous vulnerability. It takes trust. And at times, it takes having your trust broken. It means you're giving your heart, and sometimes they take advantage of it. And yes, they may leave you. You may not see progress or fruit as quickly as you wish. In fact, their lack of fruit may begin making you question your own faith and walk with Jesus, that you're like, I don't want to do this again. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of something my grandpa always said to me. He always said this to me when we were golfing. Golf you got main, three main clubs, right? you got your drivers or your woods, irons, and then you got the stupid thing called the putter. I loved the driver. I was so good with the driver. And I remember I would golf with my grandpa all the time, and he'd be like, man, you just crushed that ball. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he would whoop my tail every time because I couldn't putt. And then he would always say that infamous golf quote, right? Some of you already know this. You drive for the show and you putt for the dough. (laughs) 
the church is a little too enamored with the driver. We see this as the driver. We judge this. We say, I'll commit to the church based upon the production value and the preaching and all these kind of stuff. I will be discipled by attending a church on a Sunday morning. It's a driver. Discipleship is the putter. Go make disciples. Oh, that's why you're telling me to be strong in the grace. Oh, that's why you said fan into flame, because that's not just for me, that's for other people. Oh, that's why you told me to not be ashamed of the gospel, because we're to tell other people about Jesus. Okay, I need to remember what God has done for me. And I need to go entrust that to other people. This is the plan. This is the plan. So now I'm going to ask, who's your one down? Right? It's important for us to be being invested in. You need to be asking people, hey, you want to join me to talk about following Jesus? Kind of see where this goes? I mean, Jesus did the same thing. Follow me. Follow me. Uh, okay. But who's your one down? Because you two need to entrust this message this way of life to other people. And in this verse, there's four generations, and we can pull it out this way. It was from Jesus to Paul, because Paul received the gospel from Jesus, and then it went from Paul to Timothy, and then Timothy to faithful people, and then it went from those faithful people to other faithful people. How else do you think the message of Jesus came from a prison in Rome to Austin, Texas? It wasn't because they had killer worship. It was because they were strong in the grace. Strong in the grace. One up, one down. So what does it look like to be strong in the grace? Well, chapter one paints the picture. Fan into flame. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of those who've been following Jesus. You guard that good deposit. You follow the pattern of sound teaching. And then you entrust this deposit to other people. That's what it looks like to be strong in the grace. And so what Paul does now in verses 3 through 7 is he gives three metaphors, three types of illustrations to connect the dots to saying, hey, if you want to be strong in the grace, it looks like this and this and this. Share in the suffering of a soldier. A soldier gives up their individual rights to be part of a collective movement, wholehearted devotion, obedience, chain of command, self-discipline, single focus. Their aim is to please their enlisting officer. Who's our enlisting officer? You can give the church answer now. Jesus Be like the soldier. Being strong in grace looks like a soldier. And they don't get themselves entangled or weighed down or distracted by civilian affairs. That is a representation of the seed that grows amongst the weeds. The cares and concerns of this world choke it out. Because then Jesus would teach Seek first the kingdom of God and he will give you all else. A soldier doesn't worry about their provision, doesn't worry about where they live because they are part of a movement. It may not be what they want, but that's not why they joined. Be like an athlete. They have to compete according to the rules. The cultural context, if you're going to be part of the Greek games, You have to train for 10 months. You have to train for 10 months. And if you were to compete and they found out that you cheated and didn't train for those 10 months, they would kill you on the spot. 
Nations and peoples are represented in athletes and teams. Don't believe me? World Cup. Did you, ever, did you hear what happened in Brazil when they lost? People committed suicide. Like, kind of a, taking a little too far. <laughs> but you train, an athlete trains. In the off-season and in-season, there's diet, there's focus, but they compete according to the rules. What are the rules for us as an athlete of following Jesus? Yes, it takes discipline. It takes single-minded focus. But also, what if, what if it means, like, abiding in Jesus? Because apart from him, you can do nothing. What if it means walking by the Spirit? What if it means fan into flame? What if it means making disciples, compete according to the rules, and be like the farmer? Be like the farmer. Growing up in Wisconsin, on a good day and a bad day, you could always smell the farm. My friends were farmers, and I praise God every moment of my life and thank him that I'm not a farmer. Because those boys and gals work hard. And they have no control of the outcome. Early hours, long hours, because they cannot afford to lose time. They got to get it in, got to get it done. Otherwise, they could miss it. Constant toil, plowing, sowing, tending, weeding, reaping, storing, multiple disappointments. Like there could be a freeze. <laughs> we know about those now. Pests, disease, droughts. Like there's got to be patience. Like, oh my goodness, is this going to grow? Is it going to produce the yield that we want? And, at, and even sometimes I remember my farmer friends saying, I am so bored. Just waiting. A life that is strong in the grace is like the farmer. They're going to continue to sow and work at what is needed, and they are going to trust the Lord to produce the results. They work hard because they know the time is urgent. They know that window is short. Oh, Jesus said, look up. The harvest, plentiful. Asbury? universities, people sold cars and things in other countries to get here. There's a hunger. There was, I heard a story of an atheist student who showed up at Asbury and someone said, what are you doing here? She's like, I just need to know God. Be like a soldier. Be like an athlete. Be like the farmer. And I love how Paul ends this to him. He's like, consider what I say, Timothy. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's almost as if Timothy is like, Paul, that was intense. Paul, that was a lot. I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that you left me here and you're dying. Maybe Timothy's like hearing this and he's just like super uncomfortable. Maybe he takes another step back or maybe he's convicted of sin. Maybe he's not ready to receive it. And like, I love what Paul's doing. Think it over. Reflect on this, chew on it, pray about it, because I'm telling you, God will reveal it to you. So church, this is your invitation, and this is your application. Think it over. Think it over. If you're wrestling with this, take these words. Wrestle with God with them. He will reveal it to you. Think it over. Paul knows that what he just said was heavy. And he urges him to think it over. And as he does, look at the last few verses. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Be strong in your grace. You see how Paul is going full circle Remember Jesus. Remember him resurrected from the dead. He conquered death in the grave. And 
He's a descendant of David. He's on the throne. He's the king of kings and everything is underneath him. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember Jesus. Remember he is the promised king. And nothing can stop that. Paul or Timothy, that's why I say I don't care that I'm in chains. Because I already know he resurrected. He can't be defeated. He's on the throne. The word of God cannot be changed. Gates of hell cannot prevail. Man can't do anything to me. Timothy, remember Jesus. Remember it. It's worth it. And he's saying this to Timothy when he's about to be executed. Discipleship matters. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Think it over. And as you do, remember him. And as you remember him, guess what ends up happening? You begin to remember your calling. He set you apart by his grace. And he gave you a gift that you are to fan into flame for the sake of other people. You're wrestling with that now? Timmy, that's okay. You meditate on it and you ask God about it and he will confirm it to you. Make sure you do. Remember Jesus. Remember your calling. And then I absolutely love how he ends. Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying. Timothy, you can bet your life on this one. These words are true. If we died with him, if we gave up our lives for him, if we were buried with him in his death, we will, not we may or we hope we will live with him. Timothy, if we endure and keep moving forward, we will not just live with him, we will reign with him. But let's also remember that if we are ashamed of him, he will also be ashamed of us. But Timothy, here's good news. If we are faithless, if we stumble and fall, if we neglect our gift, if we are momentarily ashamed of Jesus, if we miss opportunities because we're afraid, if we have for a season walked away, if we haven't been strong in grace and found ourselves legalistic, listen. Listen, Timothy, if you're a civilian and not a soldier, if you found yourself being a spectator instead of an athlete, if you find yourself being a consumer instead of a farmer, Timothy, he's faithful. He's faithful. You be strong in that grace, Timothy. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. If you stumble and you fall, there's more grace. Grace in abundance. And that grace will teach you to say no to sin. That grace will give you everything you need to stay strong in the grace and to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. Timothy, if we are faithless, he's faithful. Because he can't change. Some of you right now, have a hard time believing that God loves you. And that's why some of you still strive to be strong in yourself. I gotta prove, I gotta earn, I gotta, I know I could do more. You know what breaks my heart the most? When I engage with people who are 35 and younger and I start talking about the relationship with Jesus, the immediate result or the immediate response I get is, I know I should do more. I know I could be doing more, I know I could be better. And I immediately think someone needs to show them how to walk in grace. Grace is for you. Grace is for you. And he's faithful. If he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. So what I want to do as we conclude this time of worship, I'm going to ask some people to come up here just to pray for anybody who needs to receive grace. I want to encourage you to humble yourself and to receive grace. 
There's nothing magical or supernatural that happens when you choose to come forward for prayer. But what it is, it's an act of humility. Because I know you're sitting there wrestling with your own pride. I don't want to. I should. No, I should. No, I'm not going to. No, I should. No. Okay, I won't. Wait, there's no one up there. Okay, I won't. If you need grace, if you need to be strong in the grace, humble yourself. He gives grace. Isaiah 30, verse 18 and 19. I am falling in love with this verse. Therefore, the Lord waits. (laughs) He's waiting to be gracious to you. He's waiting for you to come cry out to him. Because verse 19 says that when you cry, he hears you, and he immediately, immediately answers. So as we sing this song, and we're just... If you need it, we'll, we'll keep going as long as we need to and all that kind of stuff. But we want to minister to you. If you need grace, humble yourself and come forward and let someone pray over you. So those who have been tapped to come forward to pray for people, I'm going to encourage you to come on up. And even if you just feel kind of like, like man, I want to pray for people. I want to serve people that way. You can come on up, come on up too. But I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. And God, that we would remember you, your faithfulness, your goodness, your mercy, your kindness. And God, I ask that that would flow over into us embracing weakness, boasting in our weakness, reveling and sitting in your grace. Lord, I pray that you would humble us. God, I pray that we would break our own pride through the power of your spirit and we would receive grace. You heap grace upon us. Lord, we need your love to compel us to be part of what you're doing. Lord, I would pray that for us as a church, that we would be a church that takes seriously the mandate of pouring our lives into other people and trusting into faithful people. And so, Lord, maybe by your spirit, like what is needed for Austin Oaks Church is just a time of confession, a time of repentance, of apathy, of indifference, of excuse making. God, maybe this is a time where we just say, I need grace. And so, Lord, I just give your spirit room to minister and to work to our hearts. We're thankful that if we're faithless, you are faithful.